and from listeners like you who donate at WJFFradio.org. edition news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dold. And coming up in the second half of the program, we've got the state of COVID, an update on where COVID stands now with yet another variant going around. Patricio Rabio talks to the talks to the experts. And that's coming up in the second half of the program. But first, taking a look at the environment climate change because uh, yesterday Ulster County Executive Jen Metzger took action on the pressing issue of climate change through an executive order. The county's going to strive towards reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Opening line of an article about it says uh, Ulster County's not going to wait for the rest of the world. Joining us now from the Empire of Dirt is climate reporter Lissa Harris to talk about this story and more. Lissa, thank you for joining us once again. Jason, thanks for having me. So this is this is uh, this is some news, right? What does this all mean? I, I think it's news. What what do you think? You're the one who's looking <laughs> at all this. It's you know it's it's news and it's also you know it's it's also kind of what's for dinner in New York State these days. So you know I don't want to downplay what Ulster County is doing because they're ahead of the pack here. Uh, you know the the executive order that Jen Metzger just put out um, really kind of aligns the county with where New York state is going on climate and, uh, and lays the groundwork for the county to do kind of a state writ small, uh, assessment of where it's at with, uh, with greenhouse gases and with climate planning and with tackling a whole bunch of problems from energy to home weatherization to electrifying, um, county fleets and, uh, you know, creating renewable energy and dealing with waste. All this stuff is stuff that the state has to deal with on a larger level and that every county has to deal with. And I think in some ways that, you know, addressing these problems through the through climate tools is a way to sometimes tackle other problems that are pressing for for people, too. Uh, so Ulster County is taking a bold step here. Um, but this is these are changes and and actions that <clears throat> may well be coming for uh, you know, smaller governments across the state in the years to come. And, you know, before we get into the details, like you said, like this, like this is what's for dinner in New York State. This is what's been going on. And honestly, anybody who's been paying attention to what Jen Metzger has been doing and what she's all about in, in recent years, like this is the sort of thing you would have expected her to do when she got into that position, too. Absolutely. I mean, this has been Jen Metzger's 
you know, one of her main issues for a long time. She, as a state senator, was one of the people that um, was most involved in drafting the climate law <clears throat> that New York State passed in 2019. So she knows very well what's in it. She knows what's coming. And, you know, what what she wants to do is to make sure that that Ulster County is ready. And, and I think part of that readiness is looking to um, <clears throat> some of the new federal tax incentives and funding for um, for energy, for for electric vehicles, for home weatherization, for all of this stuff um, that has only recently been passed and that the rules are still being worked out on these programs. She wants to make sure that Ulster County and its residents can take advantage of some of these these programs that are that are coming through very soon. So what are what are some what's the goal of the plan? But what, what are some of the details that, that, that are in there that that at least stand out to you? Sure. So the overall goal of the plan, as I see it, is it's a, it's a 13 point plan. It's pretty broad and there's a lot of stuff in it. Um, but the overall goal is to uh, to align Ulster County on a smaller level with the greenhouse gas reductions that that New York State wants to see um, by, you know, there's some, there's some target dates that, that New York State is trying to hit. And the big one is 2050. By 2050, the state economy, uh, if all goes according to, to plan, um, will be, will have 85% less greenhouse gas emissions than, um, than it did in 1990. That's, the, that's kind of the benchmark. So Ulster County wants to hit that too within their own county borders. Um, 85% reduction by 2050. And what that means is they have to start, you know, in addition to trying to, um, to make the transition to clean energy in a, in a whole bunch of different ways, they need to know what their emissions are. They need to, they need to start planning and they need to start looking at data. And, uh, you know, Ulster County has already embarked on some of that through their, their Green New Deal initiative, but this, this will extend that and really align the county with the state goals. But, there's also lots of specific stuff in here too. <laughs> we, you know, so, we've we've yeah. talked a, a lot about you know the fact that New York State has these lofty goals, and then there's this real question of how are we going to reach them? What steps are going to be taking? Is this the sort of thing that you're looking to to see happen uh, to to actually meet those benchmarks? Yeah, there there's you know there's some specific stuff in here that. Um, you know, that tackles pieces of that, that bigger goal. Um, one of the really interesting ones, and I think this is interesting also in the context of, of Sullivan County and of, of every, every county, but, you know, especially these rural counties, um, is, uh, is waste. Where does our trash go? Uh, methane is a huge, huge um, greenhouse gas contributor and a more important one than we realized even just, you know, five or ten years ago. It's, it's become really clear that methane is, is making a bigger dent in climate change and not in a good way than, than we thought. So dealing with organic waste, which, which produces methane, has become super important. And uh, one of the points in the Ulster County plan is setting a goal of diverting 100% of organic waste from landfills and incinerators by 2030, uh, starting with the county's own operations, so you know they're gonna they're gonna try to, you know, eat their own dog food, as they say. Uh, they want to do more organic waste recycling and more composting, and and build that up to the goal of really getting getting organic waste out of landfills and 
uh, you know, and thereby by composting it, by doing other things with it, you reduce the, the methane that's emitted. Yeah, but that's I, relevant to Sullivan County too. You guys have got some uh, some some organic waste and and trash and landfill issues there. Yeah, and we're not even you know we're not even putting uh, uh, any more waste in the current landfill. And uh, this, I'm, I was looking for. Uh, the article that I saw about this, wherever I saw this news, but sometime in the past week, I, I, I saw an article that was saying, like, well, uh, Solomon County is getting ready to start thinking about what the next steps might be or where else to send uh, solid waste. And and it was just so sad to think that this wasn't even an article saying because Sullivan County doesn't have a means of dealing with this waste anymore. It was because where we're currently sending it that's out of our area is soon going to, to not be able to handle that waste anymore. So we got to start thinking of an option C. And it's all about sending it someplace else, somewhere else. And it was, uh, you know, it's just disappointing to see. It, it You know, this is this is a great example of a problem that, you can, when you tackle a climate problem, you can, you can do that in a way so that it solves another problem too. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, 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 what do we do with our trash? Our landfills are full. You know, that's one of them. Um, but there's a lot of them. And another one that's very relevant to both, uh, both Sullivan and, and Ulster is green jobs. Um, there, there's a, a, a provision in here about investing in green job training and trying to, you know, to plan for building up the green workforce. Um, and that's, you know, that's, inc- that's incredibly, incredibly, excuse me, incredibly relevant to other problems that, you know, that we have in terms of creating good jobs for local kids and making sure that they get the job training that they need to succeed in the workforce. That's not necessarily a climate problem, but there is there are lots of ways to kind of leverage uh you know dealing with climate to also make sure that we are educating people for the jobs that are coming in electrification and hvac installation and weatherization and the the, the green economy and also to make sure that those jobs are good stable well paying jobs and that brings up you know the question of of the 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 cost and value in a monetary sense of these changes that are being proposed because people that oppose uh typically changes you know that are pro climate you know do so largely on an economic basis so uh, as you look at the, the this list from Ulster County are you seeing are there th- are there a lot of costs on that list or are there a lot of benefits financially on that list i th- you know i think there's probably both and you know this executive order does not have a price tag on it um but you know one of the things that i'm seeing here that seems so, like something maybe other county governments should take notice of is uh, planning to help local small businesses and residents take advantage of um, the the basically the incentives for producing renewable energy, the incentives for installing more efficient uh, heating equipment in your home for weatherizing for um, for buying electric vehicles, all of this stuff. So, you know, one of the things that Ulster County wants to do is to create an outreach program to help people with that because it's all very new. Um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the program rules for this stuff have not yet been worked out. Um, so that's clearly a benefit to, uh, to, to county residents, the local economy, to small businesses and, and all of that. Um, and, 
also, I think it's worth pointing out that the, the economics of, of clean energy versus fossil fuel energy, if, uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking at 10-year-old data for how expensive solar is versus gas and coal electricity, you're, you're not really living in the present. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cost of renewable energy has gone way down. And, you know, it's, it's not always apples to apples because uh, you, you can use solar energy in different ways sometimes than you can use a, a gas-powered plant. They operate differently. They solve different problems. But in terms of just how cheap it is to create the power, solar is far and away cheaper than, uh, you know, than, certainly than coal. And the, the costs of renewable energy have gone way down, and, uh, and the efficiency of clean energy tech has has uh, has really kind of uh, made a lot of technological progress recently. So it's there's costs, but it's you know it's not as straightforward I think as uh, as, as people might think, and there there's savings and benefits as well. So the, I think the role of of government here is to to benefit its citizens, to make sure that the local residents are not the ones that are shouldering the cost, but rather the ones that are benefiting from this transition, which is well underway, not just here, but really, you know, all over the world, uh, industry is grappling with this, governments are grappling with this, so it's coming. And, you know, the, the question is, do we do it well or, or, or not? <laughs> And, you know, uh, New York State's a place to look at to see how, you know, we, we start off here in America. Maybe Ulster County is where we look to see how things get rolling in New York State. We only have one minute left, Lissa. I was wondering if there was anything else you wanted folks to know or if you've got something coming up in Empire of Dirt you want to flag us on. Um, I keep an eye on Empire of Dirt because I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna write something pretty soon about, um, how diff- how the different counties of the Catskills are, are dealing with with climate and with these issues and and what their worries are about it as well as as what um, you know enthusiasms and excitement uh, people have about about fixing some of these problems. It's a lot, and, and you know we're not going to you know necessarily uh, do well at this mm-hmm. <laughs> in every department, and so it, it's 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 a lot for local governments to grapple with, especially our little rural towns where. Um, you know, it's practically volunteers running the towns, and that's it's, it's a lot to grapple with for, for part-time government officials that are, you know, that the problems of the world are, are quite large to, to put on a, a, a small-town supervisor. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're looking at it, and I thank you so much for talking to us about it and Empire Dirt uh, found on Substack. We've been talking to local climate reporter Lisa Harris. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to The Local Edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. And, well, it's been two years since the outbreak of COVID-19 and the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, even now, there's still a, yet another new variant that has emerged. Our own Patricio Robayo spoke with two experts in the field, Dr. John Moore, virologist at Wild Cornell Medicine, and Dr. Rena Patel, medical director for Garnet Health Urgent Care. They share their insights and advice for navigating this ongoing crisis. 
A surge of positive COVID-19 cases is becoming a common trend after a major holiday. Where folks gather and mingle, a wave of positive COVID-19 cases follows. We are two years out of the start of the pandemic. What's different? What have we learned? Recently, the Centers for Disease Control has been recommending that vaccines be issued more on a yearly basis, much like the flu vaccine, instead of when a new variant emerges. U.S. Food and Drug Administration recently voted that in the future, anyone who has a primary COVID-19 vaccine will receive the bivalent vaccine instead of the original formula. According to the New York State Department of Health, the new variant, XBB.1.5, has been found at the highest rates in the New York City, Long Island, and Mid-Hudson regions. These regions have also experienced the most elevated case rates in New York State since November 2022. But what about this current variant, XBB.1.5? Is it more dangerous? And why does it seem more transmittable? Dr. John Moore, a virologist with Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City, says the virus has become more transmittable since the Omicron first surfaced in the United States. These viruses are increasingly transmissible. They have a greater ability to infect cells in the nose and and take root in the body. They also particularly have a greater ability to break through antibody protection that's been conferred by vaccination, previous infections, and both together. So we've seen this trend, and it's a continuing trend, and it will probably continue to be a continuing trend. However, while this new variant is more contagious, Dr. Morris says it's not any more lethal than the previous variants common tendency is to have a few bad days at home um, and sore throat perhaps, uh, runny nose, some coughing. But it is very rare for healthy people, previously healthy people, to end up in hospital or worse. Dr. Moore says those who end up in the hospital are usually older adults and those with pre-existing conditions. Something we've seen throughout the pandemic that the, the more vulnerable people are the ones who suffer worst and they are, of course, the ones who most benefit from vaccine protection. According to the New York State Department of Health, 76% of New Yorkers have completed their primary vaccines. In Sullivan County, it's around 61% of the population. So why is the virus still mutating? And why does it seem like it's doing it at a fast pace? Dr. Moore says the virus's main goal is to replicate and find new ways to become stronger. The driving force is for a greater ability to infect more people. And that can occur in one of two, well, multiple ways. But the two most common ways are to Uh, increase its ability to infect cells in the nose so that less virus is needed to infect a person. So if somebody sneezes out virus near you, uh, you'll breathe some of it in and a more transmissible variant will take root if you breathe less virus in, if you were further away or if somebody coughed out or sneezed out a little bit less virus, it can still be a risk. As more and more people become infected, the virus tries to fight its way around the antibodies and continues to mutate. While people are still being infected, Dr. Moore says the difference this time around, fewer people are dying in the hospital. But those antibodies and other immune responses are still very effective at 
protecting against serious disease and death. So they're less effective at stopping infections, but they are still very effective at keeping people uh, alive and out of hospital. But we are seeing more infections because of these factors. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are recommending changes to the vaccine schedule going forward, signaling a shift from an emergency response to a more long-term plan. Dr. Rena Patel, medical director for Garnet Health Urgent Care, says she thinks it's a good idea that the CDC is recommending this change. For me, it just makes sense. Because if it's changing, we need to change with it to protect ourselves. And, you know, if this is mostly, this is really big for me with our vulnerable population, our people who have comorbid conditions, who have other medical history that will make it a little harder for them to get past the virus or could be potentially hospitalized, whether or not they have the vaccine. You kind of need everything on your side. So if they do end up coming up with an annual recommendation, I would support it. I would support it because it makes sense for me. Dr. Moore said there are arguments being made on both sides. Some agree there needs to be a change, while others are against the transition. There's a considerable amount of um, divergent opinion on what should be done. Uh, there are people who, so there is, one of the proposals is to make an annual booster in, that would be given every September, October. Uh, some people are arguing that that is uh, not a good idea because they think that there should be more frequent boosting, say every six months. Other people disagree with that. Some people are arguing that the composition of the vaccine needs to be changed. Other people think that would not be particularly helpful. So it's quite quite complicated, but there's certainly a lot of ideas out there, some of which are more practical than others. And we, I think we just have to see what happens in the next several days. We are over two years into this pandemic. When the CDC first recommended masks to help combat the virus from spreading before there were COVID-19 vaccines, masks were very hard to come by. Online stores and distribution outlets raised prices as supply was limited. But now you can find masks anywhere you go. There's no shortage of them. But what part do masks play in this current time of the pandemic? Dr. Patel says she's all about masks during large group gatherings, and they're still required in medical offices. And I 100% find them very important when you yourself don't feel well. Just to be safe, to wear a mask, you know, whether you did an at-home COVID test that was negative um, or you were seen by your regular doctor, if you have a cough, if you have a sneeze, if you're not feeling well, it's just respectful of yourself and to others to wear a mask to prevent the spread of disease because masks do show efficacy. Nothing is 100%, you know, but masks are helpful. So I, I definitely still see them playing a role um, in our current lifestyle and in the future, to be honest with you. Dr. Moore says masks do work, but there is an increasing number of people who want to avoid wearing masks in certain situations. Well, masks work, but people are increasingly just don't wear them. And that's a strange feature of our society. And we're all, we're all in this. I mean, <laughs> I don't wear a mask um, in many places where common sense says I probably should. We don't. And yet, um, in, in Asian countries, mask wearing has been absolutely standard behavior. So 
yeah, we have to ask ourselves, what do we want here? Do we want the inconvenience of wearing a mask or do we want to get sick? Recently, hospitals and urgent cares in our area had to turn away some patients because of the bottleneck of folks who came in with symptoms of COVID-19, RSV, and flu. During the holidays, we did have to um, hold back on registration quite a few times because we were just getting a bottleneck of patients signing in because, you know, we don't have scheduled appointments. And I think that just kind of reflects back on people just wanted to be responsible and they wanted to get tested and make sure that, you know, if they were experiencing some symptoms, it wasn't something that could be detrimental potentially to themselves or somebody else. Dr. Patel says she was seeing young patients who are not only affected with COVID-19, but also RSV. But we just had to be so much more careful in educating our patients and letting them know everything they could do at home to have the best ability to overcome the temporary illness that they were dealing with. Um, so it was a lot more phone calls, a lot more education, um, and a lot more questions because this was new for everybody. When the vaccine was released, some people across the country were against the vaccine providing false information on websites and social media. According to Dr. Moore, the anti-vaccine movement has called many unnecessary deaths. I mean, the anti-vaccine campaign has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans, and that's a national tragedy. Um, the vaccination campaign has saved well over a million American lives and well over a trillion dollars in healthcare costs. It's seen a huge success, and yet it's being trashed by people with an evil agenda. And that evil agenda has killed a lot of people. Father Patel says those patients who were not vaccinated were the ones suffering more in the hospitals. People that were not vaccinated were suffering more on the inpatient hospitalized side. And I really just, I, I feel more so for the people that were misled or misguided by um, that movement. Because of the anti-vax movement, Dr. Patel said, it made fighting the virus that much harder. And being a physician, um, a lot of trust was lost. And I think we're in a, we're in a better place now. You know, we, I think we all just tried our best, to be honest with you. And it just made it a little bit harder to get to where we are today um, it was almost like another wall when we had a potential for something that was, you know, even though it was new, it was helping us. Going forward, COVID-19 will be a part of our lives, much like the flu and the common cold. We need to learn how to live with it, yet still be protected. Dr. Patel says as time goes on and as more and more research is done, we will be better prepared to fight infections. We are more prepared with this virus, this subvariant, and we are in a better position, a much better position than we have previously been. I do still think vaccines are effective at preventing the infection, and in most individuals, they're very effective overall preventing severe infection, which is what we are most concerned about. Dr. Moore says it's hard to predict what will happen in the future now that we have reached population immunity. Most Americans have been previously infected, or vaccinated, or both. And that builds up a great deal of immune protection. So, and that means that most infections do not lead to the, the worse outcomes. So that means we're living with the virus, we're not 
dying from the virus unless you're in a very high-risk group of, of elderly or serious pre-existing conditions. So we are now living with the virus. We're living with the inconvenience of becoming sick for a week with symptoms equivalent to a bad cold. So we are living with the virus, and I assume that that's going to continue. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. Well, thank you, Patricio, for that report. Thanks to our guest, Lisa Harris, for joining us in the first half of the program. And thank you for listening to the local edition. We're here every weekday evening starting at 6.30. Remember, don't ever miss any edition of the local edition. Sign up for the local edition podcast from Radio Catskill, wherever you get your podcast from. If you want to stay tuned, coming up, we've got Mr. Kusar Grace in the Music Emporium. This is Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpopic, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com. And from listeners like you. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. Keeping you connected.